Let's hear God's word. Our Bible reading this evening is to be found in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah and chapter 1. The book of Nehemiah, the first chapter, and beginning to read at the first verse. Nehemiah chapter 1 from verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to our hearts by his gracious Holy Spirit. Let's sing again, this time the hymn of 370, 370. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. The next hymn.
This evening we're beginning a new series of sermons looking together at Nehemiah, the man, the book, and uh, the message. Uh, Thinking about God's people as we find them in the pages of the book of Nehemiah back in the 5th century B.C. And thinking about the lessons that we can learn from them and uh, their experiences which are applicable and relevant to us as Christians and uh, as a church in uh, the 21st century AD. It might be worth us taking just a moment at the beginning to uh, place Nehemiah in the Old Testament a narrative. We find him round about the middle of the Old Testament. If you have a Bible and you're struggling to find the book of Nehemiah, you open your Bible around about the middle and you'll probably find yourself in or near uh, the book of the Psalms. And then you just uh, back up uh, through uh, Job and uh, Esther to uh, Nehemiah. And there he is just after uh, the book of Ezra. And so finding Nehemiah as we do round about the middle of the Old Testament, we might mistakenly think uh, that uh, uh, this book is telling us about what was going on around about the middle of Old Testament history. But to understand where uh, Nehemiah fits in, we really need to think about uh, five Old Testament books and how they relate uh, to one another. Ezra and Nehemiah here in the middle of the Old Testament, as we have it in our Bibles, and then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, uh, the three books at the very end of the Old Testament, as we have it in our Bibles. The Israelites had been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. When in the year 537 BC, as a result of the famous decree of King Cyrus, the first return uh, to uh, Jerusalem took place. And that is narrated by Ezra in the first half of his book. And it was uh, around about that time uh, that Haggai and and Zechariah were, were ministering and were, were inputting into the situation. And it was as a result of that first return uh, that the temple was rebuilt in uh, Jerusalem. It was some years later, in the year 458 BC, uh, that uh, there was a second uh, return uh, from uh, Babylon uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And that is narrated in the second half of uh, the book of Ezra. And those who returned to (coughs) Jerusalem at that time found that all uh, was not well in Israel. Uh, There were issues, including uh, regarding God's people having intermarried uh, with those of the nations around about. But then a few years later, in the year 445 BC, there was a third return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that was led by Nehemiah. And uh, he was a contemporary of uh, Ezra. And uh, as a result of this uh, third return, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, the city walls, 
were rebuilt. They were built again. And it was a little while after that that then Malachi appeared on the scene. Uh, so Ezra and Nehemiah, they're not, they're not in the middle of Old Testament history. They, they really belong at the end with Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. The reason they're placed where they are is that they come at the end of what we call the historical books at the end of the books that narrate the history of Israel in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, of course, comes at the, come at the end of the prophetical uh, books. Uh, but they belong many ways together. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're all, as I've outlined, uh, belong to roughly uh, the last hundred years or so of Old Testament history before then uh, there was the silence for four centuries before Christ uh, came into the world. We'll call our series uh, from the book of Nehemiah a project build uh, because it's very much about building. Uh, Nehemiah and his team are, are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. <laughs> But I put it to you that all of us are involved in a building project or perhaps multiple building projects. We are all of us building our lives. We may be building our families. You may be building a career or building a home. And of particular application from the book of Nehemiah we are engaged together in the building of Christ's church. We know ultimately it is Christ who is building his church and unless he uh, builds then we labour in vain. But we know too that he uses us as his people in this great building project as he builds his church. And Jerusalem in the Old Testament is very much a picture of the church. And so we can make application of the experience of Israel in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day to our experience as Christians in the Church of Jesus Christ in our times. So this evening we're looking together at the chapter we've read, Nehemiah chapter 1, which is really a chapter of two halves. In the first half, verses 1 to 3, Nehemiah hears from Jerusalem. And uh, then in the second half, verses 4 to 11, he prays for Jerusalem. He hears from Jerusalem and then he prays for Jerusalem. And so we might ask, well, what does he hear and what does he pray? What does he hear? Well, we're introduced to Nehemiah, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of of Hakaliah. We'll learn more about Nehemiah over subsequent weeks. Uh, and then uh, we uh, read about uh, this man, uh, Hanani, verse 2. Uh, Hanani, one of uh, Nehemiah's brethren, came with men from Judah. And so Nehemiah, he's interested to, to know how, how are things going among uh, those who have returned from the Babylonian captivity. How are things going back in Israel there in uh, Jerusalem? 
And Hanani hits Nehemiah in verse 3 with three pieces of bad news. He strikes three sad notes. Namely, that the people are in great distress and reproach, that the walls are broken down, and that the gates have been burned down. It's a bleak picture that Hanani paints for Nehemiah. The city gates burned down, the city walls broken down, the people there in Jerusalem in great distress and reproach. That, in short, is what Nehemiah hears. But what does he pray? Well, really, the rest of the chapter is his prayer. And uh, we could just highlight three things. This is still by way of introduction, in case you think we're already on point two of the sermon. Uh, Still by way of introduction, uh, we can highlight uh, three uh, aspects of, of Nehemiah's prayer here. He prays on the basis of covenant, verses 4 and 5. Uh, we have 4 to 6, rather. He, he actually begins uh, the prayer that's recorded in verse 5. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. He prays on the basis of of covenant, that the Lord is the covenant God, the one who has made covenant with his people, who has covenanted with with his people, uh, that he should be their God and that they should be his people. So he prays on the basis of covenant, that God has committed himself uh, to Israel, uh, to uh, Jerusalem. But then secondly, he prays in the light of promise, verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He's honest about the situation. But then he says, verse 8, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Well, the Lord had kept that promise, hadn't he? They had been unfaithful to him and he had scattered them among the nations. But Nehemiah is not done in praying in the light of promise. He continues to remind God of his promise, verse 9, that he had said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he prays in the light of promise, that yes, the Lord had promised that if his people turned from him, then there would be consequences. But he had also promised that if they returned to him, then he would bless them anew and afresh. And so he pleads with the Lord that his people might be those who would turn again to him and that he might bless them once more. So he prays on the basis of covenant and he prays in the light of promise and he also prays with a view to God's glory. Verses 10 and 11. I want you to notice the number of times we find the word your in these verses. Just look at verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power 
and by your strong hand. Nehemiah is reminding the Lord that he had so connected his own glory to his people Israel and to the well-being of Jerusalem. That he's praying this prayer, not just out of some self-interest or even out of some large-heartedness for his fellow Israelites back home there in Jerusalem, but he is praying for the glory of God. He is concerned that it is not to God's glory that Jerusalem is the way it is, that the gates are burned, that the walls are broken down, that the people are distressed and reproached. And he's saying, Lord, these are your people, and this is your city, and will you not have mercy, and will you not grant opportunity that Jerusalem may be built again? But if we were to simply say, well, in this chapter we have the first half, Nehemiah hears from Jerusalem, and we have the second half, Nehemiah prays for Jerusalem. I believe we would miss what is central and what is key to this chapter and to the beginning of this book. Because central to this chapter is the fourth verse. The fourth verse which really is the hinge on which this chapter turns. So it was, Nehemiah writes, when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This fourth verse begins by reminding us that he'd heard, he'd heard from Jerusalem. It ends by telling us that he, that he prayed, that he prayed for Jerusalem. But in the middle, central to this fourth verse, is that he wept. Nehemiah writes, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I put it to you tonight that it was Nehemiah's weeping that was the key. Because he could have heard all that he had heard, but he would never have prayed all that he prayed unless he had been moved to tears. It was because what he had heard moved him to tears that then he was enabled to pray like he did. So that's where we're going to lay the emphasis in the rest of the time we have together tonight. I'm calling the message from God's word, moved to tears. Moved to tears. It's where the story of Nehemiah begins. And so it's where we must start our consideration of it. You see, Nehemiah was emotionally invested in the people of God and in the well-being of Jerusalem. He did not allow himself to be detached. Though at this point he was still far away from Jerusalem. He couldn't hear about things being in such a mess in Jerusalem. And not be moved and not weep. And as God's people we should be those 
who are emotionally invested in the cause of God and truth. We must acknowledge that we live in a generation when there are too many dry-eyed Christians and too many dry-eyed churches. Let's not point the finger at others. Let's allow God's word to point the finger at us. Let's acknowledge that too often we are dry-eyed Christians and that we are a dry-eyed church. And let's not just apply this to others in the church family. But let's each apply it to ourselves. Let me acknowledge that I am too often a dry-eyed Christian. That I am too often a dry-eyed pastor. We live in an age when God's people have forgotten how to weep. Things don't seem to move us as once they moved God's people. And we need to understand that as it was in Nehemiah's day, so it must be in ours that revival starts in the tear ducts it does revival starts in the tear ducts when we learn again how to weep what was it that led Nehemiah to weep the tears that he shed what is it that should move us deep within and cause us to weep Similar tears. Well, I think we can highlight at least three things. Reminding ourselves that Jerusalem, as portrayed here, is a, is a picture of the church. We can't draw an absolute comparison, but there, there are comparisons to be made. And so our first point is a veiled glory. A veiled glory. Nehemiah went. Because the glory of God had been veiled. What do I mean? Well, Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the home of the temple, God's dwelling place upon earth in those days. It was as a city bound up with God's glory. And yet it was in a mess. As we've seen, the gates burned down, the walls broken down. And the people distressed and uh, reproached. Jerusalem was meant to be a visible representation and reminder of the glory of God. A reminder to God's people of the God whom they served and of how glorious he is. And a representation to the world that this God is like no other God. That the God of Israel is the one, the true, and uh, the living God. And yet Jerusalem being in such a mess, the glory of God was veiled. Nehemiah, he's moved to tears. He's not unaffected. He doesn't brush it off. He doesn't just say, oh well, never mind. 
No, he knows it shouldn't be like this. This is not how Jerusalem is meant to be. He knows something must be done. He cannot be indifferent to the situation of Jerusalem. He knows he needs to pray. He knows he needs to act. And as the narrative unfolds, he does pray. And he does act. But you see, it all started. There would never have been prayer. There would never have been action had he not been moved. Moved, first of all, by a veiled glory. And as we have said, Old Testament Jerusalem represents the New Testament church. The New Testament church is similarly bound up with God's glory. And yet do we not have to be honest and say that in our day and generation, certainly in our part of the world, the church of Jesus Christ is largely in a mess. It's as if the gates have been burned, the walls have been broken down, and God's people are distressed and reproached. Certainly in the West, especially in Britain. And the danger is that we can forget that things were ever different. The danger is that we can rest content with the status quo. The danger is that we can forget that the church is meant to be a visible representation and reminder of the glory of God. And yet so often we are so far from that. We are so quickly and so easily, so half-hearted, so careless, and so indifferent. But like Nehemiah, we are called to face the facts. We are called to feel the pain. I ask you, my friends, as I ask myself, are we moved to tears? Do we yearn for God's glory to be in full display. Will we pray as Nehemiah prayed? Will we act as Nehemiah acted? Or to be moved to tears. That God's glory is veiled. When the church is in a mess. A veiled glory. But the second thing tonight is this. A weakened joy. A weakened joy. I want to zoom in on what we're told about the people in verse 3. We're told the gates had been burned with fire. We're told that the walls were broken down. But notice this particularly. The people, the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province, are there in great distress and reproach. Distress and reproach. Afflicted, troubled, shamed disgraced what can we make of this well there's a verse later on in the book of Nehemiah we'll come to it in its context in a number of weeks time the Lord willing but there's a verse it's one of the standout verses in Nehemiah one of the verses that if you know any verses from Nehemiah even if you don't realize it's from Nehemiah then this might well be one of them uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 and uh, verse 10 which includes these words the joy of the Lord is your strength. To quote that statement in full, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord 
is your strength. Now, of course, that would be then Nehemiah 8. That's once the walls have been rebuilt. But this is now Nehemiah 1, when the walls are in ruin. And clearly God's people being in great distress and reproach, there is a lack of joy. They're not strong in the joy of the Lord, but rather they feel themselves to be very weak. Now we need to be balanced in our application of this. We understand from God's word as a whole that our joy should be in the Lord himself, not simply a delight in what he does. So there is joy for us as God's people in God, whatever our individual fortunes as Christians or whatever the state of uh, the church at large. But as his glory was meant to be displayed in Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's broken state weakened Israel's joy. Jerusalem was not what it was meant to be. And so God's people's heads were drooped and their hearts sagged. And similarly, as God's glory is meant to be displayed in the church, so the weak state of the church of Jesus Christ so often affects our joy as Christians. It is not that there is no joy for us in God, whatever our situation and circumstances, we've said that. But when the church of Jesus Christ is in a mess, it saps our joy, it weakens our strength. This moved Nehemiah to tears. And it ought to move us to tears too. As I was preparing this last couple of days, I was reminded of a couple of verses of a hymn in Isaac, a hymn of Isaac Watts. It's in our book. We're not singing it tonight, but you may be familiar, some of you at least, with these lines. In vain we tune our formal songs. In vain we strive to rise. Hosannas languish on our tongues. And our devotion dies. And shall we then forever live at this poor dying rate? Our love, so faint, so cold to you, and yours to us, so great. I've often been struck over the years by those two lines in particular. And shall we then forever live at this poor dying rate? Nehemiah could have sung those lines as he heard about Jerusalem. The walls, the gates, the people. And shall we then forever live at this poor dying rate? It moved him to tears. As we look at the church of Jesus Christ, our local church, the church more broadly in our land and beyond, we're not without encouragements either locally or nationally or internationally, but so many places, including here, it can be a veiled glory, it can be a weakened joy. And shall we then forever live at this poor dying? 
should move us to tears, as it did Nehemiah. Our Saviour came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly, that we might have joy and rejoice. So I believe Nehemiah wept, first of all, because of a veiled glory, secondly, because of a weakened joy, but thirdly, because of a dimmed light, a dimmed light. You see, not only was Jerusalem the city of God, but as such, it was to be a light for the nations. We know that Jerusalem was central to the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jerusalem was where Messiah would come, where he would go, and outside the walls of which he would die. And this Jerusalem, which was to be a light for the nations, is in a mess. And the nations were looking at Jerusalem. And they were holding God's people in reproach. Because Jerusalem was a sorry old mess. And similarly, in our New Testament times, the church is called to be a light for the nations. Oh, we must understand, it is not that the church is the nation's saviour, and not at all. But we are to point to the saviour of the nations, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that as he said that he is the light of the world, so he said that we are the light of the world, insofar as he is our light, and we shine his light in our place. And in our time. A verse that's always struck me from the New Testament is towards the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're familiar with 1 Timothy 3, you'll know it's the chapter that uh, is uh, all about qualifications for church officers, elders and, and deacons. Much of it is given over to that. But there's a, a paragraph at the end which you can't really understand the significance of all that goes before without this that comes after. And I don't want to go off on a tangent on 1 Timothy 3 tonight. But the, the, the little bit that I'm interested in in terms of its relevance for what we're thinking about from Nehemiah is 1 Timothy 3, the penultimate verse of the chapter, verse 15, where Paul writes to Timothy and uh, describes the church of the living God as being the pillar and ground of the truth. What's Paul saying there when he says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth? Well, you imagine uh, some substantial building that has a significant pillars. It might be an old Anglican church or it might be a temple of some kind or another or maybe a cinema or a theatre or whatever, but some building that has, uh, it's a big building and it has, it has big pillars. And the pillars are vital uh, to uh, the uh, well-being of the building. Paul is saying the church is the pillar, the ground of the truth. That the truth of God in any given place, at any given time, is only as strong as the church which holds it up and which proclaims it 
and which lives it out. And so whilst the gospel doesn't change and the truth of God doesn't change, the effectiveness of the gospel in a community, the impact of God's truth in a nation, in large part has to do with the health and the well-being of the church in that community and of the church in that nation. The Lord has so ordained that the gospel's fortunes are very much linked to the church's fortunes. And so we should desire the church's well-being because we desire the gospel's success. As we desire the gospel's success because we desire the salvation of the lost. The church is a light for the nations. The church needs to be healthy that the gospel might flourish. Now let's be clear what we're not saying. We mustn't understand the church here in terms of buildings. We should be thankful for our buildings and we should take care of them. But we're not saying, well, Nehemiah was concerned about the the building of a a physical city, Jerusalem. And so our great concern is is the building of, of a church building that we want the world to be impressed by by our buildings. No, that's not what we're saying. We know that the church of Jesus Christ is made not of bricks or stones, but of people. People who love God and who love others. People who are devoted to God and who are devoted to others. People who are growing in likeness to their Saviour, Jesus. That's the building that we're talking about tonight. And if we're honest, often the gates are burned, aren't they? And the walls are broken down. We're not the people we ought to be. We do not love God and one another as we might. We are not devoted to God and to one another as we ought to be. And we do not make the progress in Christ-likeness that in our better moments we long to make. And the result is that the gospel light is dim. It may seem that I'm painting a bleak picture tonight. Nehemiah is a wonderful book. Tremendous things happen. And we're going to find out about those in the coming weeks and months, the Lord willing. But this is where Nehemiah starts. And it was only because he wept that we've got more than three verses of this book. And so this is where we must begin. Moved to tears. These, you see, the three great priorities for this godly man, Nehemiah. The glory of God, the joy of his people, and the light of his gospel. And it broke this godly man's heart that that glory of God had been veiled. That that joy of his people had been weakened. That that light of his gospel had been dimmed. And so he wept. And he didn't just weep, but he prayed. And he didn't just pray, but he acted. 
But I say again, he would never have prayed. Not really, not truly. He would never have acted. Not in the way he did. Unless first he had wept. In the coming weeks we'll think more about Nehemiah praying. And we'll think more about Nehemiah acting. But for Nehemiah and Israel in those days. Revival began in the tear ducts. And if we are to see better days before we're done, then like Nehemiah of old, we too need to learn how to weep. We too need to be moved to tears.